Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode lies, damn lies, and statistics. The statistics we'll be talking about tonight have to do with the growth of the LDS Church and how the phenomenal growth of the church in the 1970s and 1980s has slowed dramatically in the last several years. This will come as no surprise to listeners of this podcast, but based upon the last statistical analysis I have seen, the growth of the church is leveling off and may even be to the point where it is about to flatline in the next several years. Here are the latest statistics. In 2014, church membership growth was 1.92%. It was the worst church growth since 1957. In 2015, church growth was 1.70%, so down from 1.92% of the year before to 1.70%. Now in 2015, this qualified as the worst church growth since 1918. And finally, in 2016, church growth declined to 1.59%. That's down from 1.70% from the year before. 1.59%, which then qualified as the worst church growth since 1909. Those, in short, are the statistics that we'll be dealing with tonight. And those statistics are in spite of the fact that in 2012, the church lowered the missionary ages, resulting in a huge increase in missionaries. In spite of this glut of new missionaries on the market preaching the gospel, church membership growth is not correspondingly increasing. Rather, it continues to decline. But now I want to take you back 40 years to when I joined the church in 1978. When I joined the church in 1978, church growth was booming. From 1978 and on through the 80s, church growth was increasing at such a rate that predictions were made that if that rate of growth continued, by 2080, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints would be a new world religion. The remarkable rate of church growth became the subject of many general conference talks and many talks on the stake and ward level. I heard them frequently growing up in the church, and most often cited was the prophecy from the second chapter of the book of Daniel. Now I hope that you know what this prophecy is about and what this story is about. I can guarantee you that if you don't know, you would have known had you been a member of the church back in 1978 because at that time it seemed like you could not swing a cat without hitting chapter 2 of the book of Daniel and the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's interpretation of the dream. In fact, some entire conference talks were devoted to this story. Let me give you the Reader's Digest version. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has a dream that troubles him so much that he needs to know the interpretation. But not only does he need to know the interpretation, he needs to know the dream itself because he has forgotten what the dream was about. Now, why it is that Nebuchadnezzar should be troubled by a dream that he's forgotten is never clarified in the story. This serves as a plot device in the story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And by a plot device, I mean something that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense if you stop and think about it 
but it's designed to move the story along. Without the plot device, you would not have the story. It's sort of like the letters of transit in the movie Casablanca. So back to Daniel, we have a king who has a horrible nightmare, can't remember it, but is so upset by it that he wants his wise men to tell him what it was. So he goes to all of his wise men and says to them, I had this dream. It was so horrible. I need you to interpret it, but first, I need you to tell me what the heck it was. And the wise men are throwing up their hands saying, we can't do this. How on earth can we tell you the interpretation of a dream that you don't even remember? And how can we tell you what the dream was about when it was your own dream and you don't even remember the dream yourself? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was not happy with this response, so he said, I'm going to kill all of you because you're no good to me. Obviously, you're not true prophets. You're not true wise men, or at least you're not wise enough for me. So I'm going to cut off all your heads. Or as the book of Daniel puts it in verse 5 and 6, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the thing is gone from me. In other words, I forgot the dream. If ye will not make known unto me the dream, with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. Which is about the worst thing you can make out of a house. But, verse 6, But if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. Now, as a side note, it appears that it never occurred to these wise men that if the king doesn't remember the dream, they could just make something up and tell him that was the dream and give him an interpretation of the dream, and that way they could save their necks. No, that does not appear to have occurred to them in spite of the fact that they were so darn wise. So this part of the story could qualify as a second plot device. But both these plot devices are necessary in order to set the scene for Daniel to enter stage right. Daniel comes on the scene and says, I have a connection with the true God, the God of Israel, and I will show you not only the dream, but the interpretation of the dream. Daniel prays to God and gets the dream revealed to him that Nebuchadnezzar had had, but has forgotten. And so Daniel tells the king what the dream was. This begins in verse 31. Daniel speaking, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. In other words, it was mixed iron and clay in his feet. Daniel continues, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. So Daniel restores the knowledge of the dream to the king, and now he's going to give the interpretation thereof. And now giving the Reader's Digest version of the interpretation of the dream, Daniel says that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is the head of brass, but after him another kingdom will arise, which is represented by the breast of silver, then another kingdom, which is represented by the thighs of 
brass, and finally another kingdom will show up on the scene, which is represented by the iron mixed with miry clay in the feet of the image. And he goes on to give the final quote. And by the way, this final quote, which summarizes it, which is probably the most famous part of the story, and if you remember nothing else about the story, you'll probably remember this quote. This passage was once a seminary scripture mastery verse. And here's what it says. It's verses 44 and 45. And in the days of these kings, those would be the kings that are represented by the feet, which are made out of part miry clay and iron mixed with it. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Verse 45. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Now historically speaking, this stone referenced by Daniel, that is cut out of the mountains without hands, and then rolls down the mountainside and destroys all the other kingdoms and becomes the kingdom of God which shall stand forever. Even this passage itself identifies that it is the God of heaven that will set up this kingdom. This stone, this kingdom has been identified as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And additionally, the idea has been expounded in the LDS Church that this stone grows and grows and grows, and that's how it consumes all the other kingdoms. And this point is important. Because this stone that grows and grows and grows becomes big enough to fill the entire earth and break in pieces all the other kingdoms, is identified with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The fact of the phenomenal growth of the LDS Church in prior decades came to be seen as a fulfillment of this prophecy. Not only was it a fulfillment of this prophecy, it also stood as a testimony that the LDS Church was indeed the kingdom of God, as referenced in the book of Daniel. In other words, church growth came to be a sign of the truth of the LDS Church. You could know the LDS Church was true, at least in part, because it was growing so phenomenally. Now this passage of scripture and this entire story was told over and over and over again in the 70s, in the 80s. It continues to be referenced from time to time, but its popularity is diminishing. In other words, the number of times it is told is decreasing, not increasing. And it is likely that the reason this story is not being told as much as it was in earlier days is because the statistics show that the church is not growing anymore like it used to be. Therefore, this prophecy loses its effect in showing that the church is true and is something that should probably not be emphasized that much anymore. As President Hinckley famously put it, I don't know that we talk about it. I don't know that we emphasize it. Let me give you an example of one of the ways in which this scripture from Daniel chapter 2 has been de-emphasized in the church. 
and this has to do with the seminary program. Now you know that in seminary there are certain scripture mastery verses, at least there used to be before they changed the entire program to make it doctrinal mastery instead of scripture mastery. But scripture mastery was in vogue for a long period of time. I never went to seminary. As you may recall, I was baptized right out of high school in 1978. Therefore, I never had the opportunity to go to seminary. But after I got back from my mission, I somehow managed to get a hold of the scripture mastery cards for each of the standard works. Back in that day, there were 40 different scripture mastery verses for each of the standard works. And actually, that's not entirely correct. The Bible is one standard work, but there were 40 scripture mastery cards for the Old Testament, 40 more for the New Testament, 40 more for the Book of Mormon, and finally 44, the Doctrine and Covenants. Daniel 2 verses 44 and 45 were among the 40 scripture mastery verses for the Old Testament. But at some point, the scripture mastery verses were whittled down. Instead of having 40 scriptures for the Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, and Doctrine and Covenants, there were now only 25. So some scriptures obviously had to go. And I do not think it is a coincidence that Daniel chapter 2 is one of those scriptures that did not make the final list and ended up on the cutting room floor. As I say, for some reason, the church felt that 40 scriptures was too much for the students to be expected to memorize, and that number was decreased to 25, apparently as a tacit recognition that even though the young people in the church are the most righteous of those in the pre-existence, they do not necessarily have the best memory. This idea of church growth being a sign of the true church and a sign of the truthfulness of the LDS church was also supported by a couple of other quotes, these from Joseph Smith. Frequently, when the Daniel 2 story is told, a prophecy attributed to Joseph Smith would also be told. For instance, in the recent manual, Teachings of Presidents of the Church, Joseph Smith from 2011, chapter 11, we have the following entry under the heading, Joseph Smith said the church would fill the world. This from the manual. Although the church was very small in the beginning, Joseph Smith had a prophetic sense of its grand destiny. Wilfred Woodruff recalled that during a priesthood meeting at Kirtland, Ohio in April 1834, the prophet tried to awaken the brethren to a realization of the future state of God's kingdom on earth. So this is quoting from Wilfred Woodruff, who was speaking in general conference. This is what Wilfred Woodruff said. The prophet called on all who held the priesthood to gather into the little log schoolhouse they had there. It was a small house, perhaps 14 feet square, but it held the whole of the priesthood of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who were then in the town of Kirtland. When we got together, the prophet called upon the elders of Israel with him to bear testimony of this work. When they got through, the prophet said, Brethren, I have been very much edified and instructed in your testimonies here tonight. But I want to say to you before the Lord that you know no more concerning the destinies of this church and kingdom than a babe upon its mother's lap. You don't comprehend it. Then Wilfred Woodruff says, I was rather surprised. Joseph Smith said, It is only a little handful of priesthood you see here tonight, but this church will fill North and South America, it will fill the world." Unquote. Now it is always important to look at the provenance of any quotation attributed to somebody else. And the fact is that even though Wilfred Woodruff is saying that Joseph Smith said this, 
in April of 1834, Wilfred Woodruff does not write it down at the time. In other words, there is no contemporaneous documentation of Joseph Smith having said this. Rather, Wilfred Woodruff waits until 1898 to reveal this astounding prophecy by Joseph Smith from 1834. And if my math is correct, Wilfred Woodruff is recalling something that Joseph Smith said. Let's see, 1898 minus 1834. If my math is correct, that is 64 years earlier. Good heavens, I haven't even lived for 64 years. But here we have Wilfred Woodruff in 1898 claiming to make a word-for-word recounting of what Joseph Smith said 64 years earlier in 1834. Now, obviously, by the time Wilfred Woodruff is recounting this, the church had grown a great deal beyond what it was in 1834. I mean, it had had 64 years in which to increase in growth and expand to other nations as well. And looking at the statistics again, it appears that when Wilfred Woodruff made this statement in 1898, the church was once again in the middle of a growth spurt. For example, in 1893, the church had experienced a growth rate of 6.75%. And in 1897, the year before Wilfred Woodruff made this statement, the growth rate of the church was 5.93%. Now, this type of evidence tends to support the theory that Wilfred Woodruff was backdating a prophecy and attributing it to Joseph Smith. Because it makes sense that while the church is in a period of substantial growth, Wilfred Woodruff would then be more likely to remember that Joseph Smith had predicted such incredible growth. And it was important to place Joseph Smith's prediction into Joseph Smith's mouth at a time before the church began to experience such growth. Wilfred Woodruff certainly knew that the church experienced a great deal of growth in England. Wilfred Woodruff was a substantial part of that growth in England as a missionary. But that growth in England did not occur until 1837. And therefore, he's very careful to put this prophecy in Joseph Smith's mouth in 1834, prior to any missionaries going to England. This appears to be a classic example of backdating a prophecy. So, while it is possible that Wilfred Woodruff is accurately remembering a quote from Joseph Smith from 64 years before, this could also be a case of backdating prophecy. In other words, taking a prophecy that has in large part already come to pass and backdating it to a time before it came to pass in order to make it come to pass. This type of backdating prophecy is something that is very common in Mormonism, I mean, it's not just Mormonism, it's also common in Christianity. In fact, this entire book of Daniel, and especially this prophecy that we've been talking about, is generally believed by scholars of the Old Testament itself to be a backdated prophecy by the author of the book of Daniel, but that is a subject for another day. All I'm trying to say is that this has all the earmarks of a backdated prophecy by Wilfred Woodruff putting these words in the mouth of Joseph Smith. It cannot be proven, but if it is, it fits into a larger framework of backdated prophecies. But whether this is a backdated prophecy is really immaterial to this discussion. The fact is that this statement and this prophecy is attributed to Joseph Smith, and most members of the church have heard about it. So this prophecy, this belief, this prediction that the church will continue and continue and continue to grow until it fills all of North and South America and that it will actually fill the world is right in line with the Latter-day Saints' understanding 
of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. What this does is put a great burden on the church. As long as the church is continuing to grow, these statements, these prophecies by Joseph Smith, by Daniel, can be looked at as proof that the LDS church is true. The problem happens when the growth of the LDS church falls off, declines, and starts to flatline as it has been doing in the last several years. The question then becomes, what do church leaders do about that situation? How do they deal with the fact that for decades and decades they have been relying on church growth as a sign of its truthfulness and pointing to these prophecies as evidence of that very fact? Now, even though the Wilford Woodruff quote attributed to Joseph Smith 64 years after the fact which I just read, and the prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 have fallen off in their usage, they still do surface every now and again in the church. For example, the Wilford Woodruff quote was also used in October 2011 General Conference by Elder L. Whitney Clayton. He also used the story in Daniel still arguing even at that relatively late date 2011 that the growth of the church was a fulfillment of prophecy and therefore a sign of its truth here's what he said these prophecies about filling the world and being known world over preposterous perhaps unlikely undoubtedly impossible emphatically no it is happening before our eyes in addition to Daniel chapter 2 and the Wilford Woodruff quote, there is frequently a third quote from Joseph Smith that is mentioned in the context of how church growth is a sign of the truthfulness of the church. It has to do with Joseph Smith's history of the church, excerpts of which you will find in the current Pearl of Great Price, in which he quotes Moroni, having said to him, Joseph Smith, he called me by name and said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me, and that his name was Moroni, that God had a work for me to do, and that my name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues, or that it should be both good and evil spoken of among all people. And that is from the Joseph Smith History, chapter 1, verse 33, in Our Pearl of Great Price. So Joseph Smith says that Moroni told him, that Joseph Smith's name would be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues, or that it should be both good and evil spoken of among all people. So obviously, in order for that to happen, the gospel has to roll forth. People have to become aware of Joseph Smith's name in order to speak good or evil of it. And this is the third in the commonly used triptych of quotes related to church growth being a sign of its truthfulness. There's Daniel chapter 2, there's the Wilfred Woodruff quote attributed to Joseph Smith, about how the church will fill the world. And then there is this quote by Joseph Smith, quoting Moroni, that Joseph Smith's name would be had for good and evil among all nations. This quotation by Joseph Smith of Moroni in the Pearl of Great Price may be another instance of a backdated prophecy. Because you see, Moroni appears to Joseph Smith on the evening of September 21st and 22nd, because it lasts all night long, so 21st and 22nd, of what year class? That's right, 1823. And that is when Joseph Smith attributes this quote to Moroni. However, this quote from Moroni does not show up in any writings of Joseph Smith until he is recounting it in 1838. Now, that is not as long a time period as the 64 years that Wilfred Woodruff waits 
before saying that Joseph Smith said that the church would fill the whole world, but it is between 1823 and 1838 is 8 plus 7, that's 15 years later. Now, something significant had happened in between 1823 and 1838, and it is important to note this when evaluating this prophecy. And what it is that is important that has happened is 1837 is the year before this prophecy is put in the mouth of Moroni. 1837, Joseph Smith has sent missionaries to England who have met with unprecedented success in baptizing people. In fact, it is estimated that in the year between 1837 and 1838, when Joseph Smith said Moroni said this 15 years before, there were approximately 1,500 to 2,000 people who were baptized in England. And this news reached Joseph Smith, of course, by letter, because he's getting continual updates on the progress of the work over there in Great Britain. In fact, it was so great that in 1838, he sent most of the apostles over to join the effort. So by 1838, Joseph Smith is very happy to know that the gospel is going great guns in Great Britain, and it is impossible to say to what extent it influenced his recounting of Moroni's words 15 years earlier. All we know is that we don't hear about it before then, and all of a sudden now, 1838, Joseph Smith has Moroni saying that Joseph Smith's name will be had for good and evil among all nations. Daniel C. Peterson, a well-known apologist for the LDS Church, wrote in the Deseret News, November 3rd, 2016, a commentary about this prophecy. And he even tacitly admits the problem with the potential of this being a backdated prophecy. This is what Daniel C. Peterson writes. It's easy to take such things for granted. In other words, this prophecy being made by Moroni in 1823 that Joseph Smith's name would be had for good and evil among all nations. How crazy is that to make a prophecy like that about an unknown farm boy in upstate New York? It's easy to take such things for granted, but in September 1823, when Moroni first visited Joseph Smith, and then he adds this, or even in 1838, when Joseph Smith history was written, the prophecy would have seemed transparently absurd to almost anybody hearing it. How likely was it that an obscure and poorly educated farmer's son on the early 19th century American frontier would become internationally famous? So you see, when Daniel C. Peterson says that this prophecy would have been transparently ridiculous in 1823 when Moroni gave it, or, he says, even in 1838 when Joseph Smith wrote it down, Daniel C. Peterson is tacitly recognizing and admitting that he is completely aware of the argument that this is a backdated prophecy. Unfortunately, Daniel C. Peterson follows his apologetic penchant by not mentioning the fact I just mentioned to you, that by 1838, Joseph Smith's name was already internationally famous. He was known in the United States, and now he was known in Great Britain, i.e. internationally. This is just one of the tricks that apologists commonly use in order to win arguments, which is by omitting facts of which they are well aware that would tend to undermine their position. I used to do apologetics for over 10 years during the 1980s in the LDS Church, and it was because of this practice by apologists and because of the fact that I found myself falling into that very practice myself in order to win arguments that it eventually became distasteful to me and I gave it up for Lent. But getting back to Daniel chapter 2 being used to 
identify the church with the stone cut out of the mountain without hands and how it would grow and fill the whole earth, President Hinckley, back in General Conference 2007. He refers to this promise and this prophecy by Moroni about Joseph Smith's name being had for good and evil among all nations and says this, quote, and this is only the beginning. You see, President Hinckley has just given a whole lot of statistics about how incredibly the church has grown since 1830 when it was organized. He says, and this is only the beginning. This work, this is President Hinckley talking, this work will continue to grow and prosper and move across the earth. President Hinckley, as president of the church, as the prophet of the Lord, in general conference, is making a prophecy, it appears. And his prophecy is this. This work will continue to grow and prosper and move across the earth. It must do so if Moroni's promise to Joseph is to be fulfilled, period, end of quote. The church has become one large family scattered across the earth. There are now more than 13 million of us in 176 nations and territories. A marvelous and wonderful thing is coming to pass. The Lord is fulfilling his promise that his gospel shall be as the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, which would roll forth and fill the whole earth, as Daniel saw in vision. So first, President Hinckley equates the gospel, or the LDS church, with the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. And now, based upon the past history of the growth of the church, President Hinckley makes this prediction. And this is only the beginning. This work will continue to grow and prosper and move across the earth. It must do so if Moroni's promise to Joseph is to be fulfilled. So actually, President Hinckley is sort of making a prophecy, but really he's backing it up by Moroni's promise to Joseph. If Moroni's promise to Joseph is to be fulfilled, President Hinckley says, this work will continue to grow and prosper and move across the earth. That quote was just over 10 years ago in 2007. And what has happened in the intervening 10 years? Well, the brakes have been put on, church growth is declining, it's about to flatline, and in a few years, it may even start to go negative depending upon how many people leave the church. And that number appears to be in catastrophic proportions at this point. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, this situation with Gordon B. Hinckley's prophecy and its failure to be fulfilled puts members of the church in a difficult position. Either Gordon B. Hinckley was a true prophet of God, in which case the LDS Church is not the true church because it is not growing in the way that Gordon B. Hinckley and others said the true church would grow, i.e. the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, or Gordon B. Hinckley is a false prophet because he prophesied 10 years ago that the LDS Church would continue to grow and the LDS Church is most decidedly not. It is slowing down, it is flatlining, it is tanking as far as its growth is concerned. So if Gordon B. Hinckley, as president of the church, made a prophecy that did not come to pass, then he is not a true prophet, and therefore the LDS church is, once again, not true. So it's sort of a Hobson's choice for members of the church at this point. Either the church is not true because it doesn't match Gordon B. Hinckley, the true prophet's prediction of what the church would do, 
or the church is not true because Gordon B. Hinckley was not a true prophet. Now, I know I've been going down a couple of side roads here to more fully illustrate and develop this subject because I think it's important to do so, and I'm going to go down another little side road here in a second, but I want to make sure that my listeners remember that the main subject of this podcast is what do the leaders of the church do when they have identified the church as true because of its growth and the church ceases to grow. But before I get to that, I want to share with you a little bit of research I did on the usage of Daniel's prophecy back in the 1970s. This is when I joined the church, and this is when the church was growing phenomenally. And this is when, as I said, you heard Daniel chapter 2 all the time, because this is what was happening. We, the Mormon church, the LDS church, was the kingdom of God. We were fulfilling biblical prophecy, and we were fulfilling it by growing at a fantastic rate. And at the same time as we were fulfilling that prophecy, we were proving by our fantastic growth that we were indeed the kingdom of God. Spencer Kimball, in 1976 General Conference, gave a very long talk in which he goes through Daniel chapter 2 in detail and reads huge sections of it. The interesting part of it is that he actually identifies the last group of kings, the ones, remember, who are the feet, the iron, and the clay, and he identifies those as the European nations. He starts off with the head of gold and moves his way down to the feet of the image in the following language. Then came the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar represented the king of kings, a world power representing the head of gold. Another kingdom would arise and take over world domination. The interpretation included the domination of other kingdoms. Cyrus the Great with his Medes and Persians to be replaced by the Greek or Macedonian kingdom under Philip and Alexander. And that world power to be replaced by the Roman Empire and Rome to be replaced by a group of nations of Europe represented by the toes of the image. So, after having identified the toes of the image as the modern-day European nations, President Kimball is ready to give the final interpretation of what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is going to do to those European nations as God sets up his kingdom throughout the world. Now came the real revelation. Daniel said, and in the days of these kings, that is, the group of European nations, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And in case there is any question in the minds of his audience, as to the identity of the kingdom of God, President Kimball goes on to make it absolutely clear beyond disputation that he means the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it was in the days of these kings that power would not be given to men, but the God of heaven would set up a kingdom, the kingdom of God upon the earth, which should never be destroyed or left to other people. 
the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, restored in 1830 after the numerous revelations from divine source. And this kingdom set up by the God of heaven would never be destroyed nor superseded, and the stone cut out of the mountain without hands would become a great mountain and would fill the earth. So there is very little wiggle room left in President Kimball's speech. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of God prophesied by Daniel. And the LDS Church will, as prophesied, continue to grow until it fills the entire earth. So this is part of the excitement that there was in being a Mormon at this period of time. And as I did this research, it brought back to me at least one of the reasons why being a Mormon and joining the church at this point in history in the 1970s was so exciting and so thrilling for me personally. We were part of a world movement and what would end up being a movement that filled the world. In retrospect, it sounds a little bit whimsical. It sounds a little bit silly, perhaps, but it was very exciting and it made everything very contemporary and very meaningful to many Mormons, me included, that we were fulfilling biblical prophecy by our growth. Not only this, Elder Theodore M. Burton in 1971 General Conference went a step further in his interpretation of Daniel chapter 2. He linked the Daniel prophecy with one in Isaiah chapter 2. So Daniel chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 2, that should be easy to remember. And the one in Isaiah chapter 2 is one also that I frequently heard in the church, but today do not hear so much anymore. It's Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. Maybe this will sound familiar. Here's the quote. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This was very important to Latter-day Saints in their usage of this because where is Salt Lake City? Well, it's up in the Rocky Mountains. Therefore, that got equated to being in the mountain of the Lord. And where was the house of God? Well, the Salt Lake Temple, we call that the house of God. And that's where the house of God is located, up there in the mountain of the Lord. And where is Zion? Well, after it didn't get established in Jackson County, it sort of got unofficially redesignated to being the Salt Lake Valley. So for out of Zion shall go forth the law. Well, that's general conference. That's the prophets talking to God and then revealing the law from Zion, which is up there in the Salt Lake Valley. So this became very, very important in LDS exegesis. So Elder Burton in 1971 General Conference uses Daniel chapter 2 and this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 2 in order to come to this very, very interesting conclusion. He talks about Brigham Young going out to Utah and how that was divinely ordained because they had much better options to go to. They could have gone to California. They could have gone to Vancouver. They could have gone to someplace nice for crying out loud. But no, they go to Utah. Why on earth would they do that? Well, it's so that these scriptures can be fulfilled. And here's what he says. Remember that the mountain or kingdom of the Lord had to be established in the top of the mountains. It had to be in mountains exalted above the hills. There the saints were to gather instructions and strength. And the gospel or stone of Jesus Christ was to roll forth from there to fill the whole earth. 
This prophecy has been and is even now being fulfilled as thousands of missionaries go forth from this gathering place to proclaim the divine message that God lives and has spoken again from the heavens. Where else can you find such literal fulfillment of these two divine prophecies? So not only was Daniel 2 applied to the church, but other general authorities such as Elder Burton in General Conference applied Isaiah 2 to the church as well and then combined Daniel 2 with Isaiah 2 to say that the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, not only is that stone the kingdom of God, i.e. the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but the mountain from which it is cut is the Rocky Mountains. We've got this whole Old Testament thing figured out and guess what? We are the fulfillment of it. Once again, my bringing this up is not just to stroll down memory lane, but it's to make a couple of points. First off, the phenomenal rate of growth was very important to the cultural and religious identity of the Latter-day Saints in the 1970s and on into the 1980s when church growth was phenomenal. Number two, it was very literal and it contributed to the sense of excitement of being a Latter-day Saint at that time period. And number three, it was completely equated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints being true. The Bible is true because it predicts the Latter-day Saints which fits the biblical prophecies and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true because it fulfills the biblical prophecies. Now, we come to the point where we make this turn in our discussion. After the Church has committed itself so repeatedly and so publicly to the proposition that the church growth proves that the church is true, what is the church to do when the church growth slows, falters, and is on the brink of flatlining? What does the church do when members are leaving the church in droves largely because of the access to information that is provided by the internet? Well, I am looking at the old clock on the wall and seeing that I am running a bit long on this podcast. If I were to cover the rest of the material I have prepared, which goes over how church leaders have responded to this situation, it will take at least another 40 minutes. So I am probably going to be doing part two to this podcast, which I will try and get out as soon as possible. As you will recall, the title of this podcast is Lies, Damn Lies, and Statistics. Well, in this part one, we have shown how it is that in prior decades, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints experienced phenomenal growth and that it came to equate that phenomenal growth with its identity as the stone cut out of the mountain without hands in Daniel chapter 2. And we've discussed how the church linked its truth to its phenomenal growth, i.e. membership grew phenomenally because the church was true So as I say, we have thoroughly covered the statistics part of the title of this podcast. In part two, when we deal with the church leadership response to the situation, we will get to the lies and damn lies part of the title of this podcast. In the meantime, and in closing, and in memory of Daniel chapter 2, and the way the church is slowly but certainly distancing itself from the book of Daniel. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.